Hi, this is Bob Gruen, rock and roll photographer from New York, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could book some rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. Well, have you read this one? This This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. Diggers, I give you Shelley Sorensen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Speech, speech. Uh, oh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. Oh, come on, this is oh, an award right, show. This is our award show, right? Oh, okay. I'm happy to accept this award. Yeah, imagine on, if you were getting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame award, would you? On behalf of all librarians around the world that love rock and roll. That's my that's my speech. Aren't you going to thank anybody? Uh, thanking uh, Christian Swain, of course. I didn't mean me. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't. You know, my family. There you go. I'd start my, there. My family. Yeah, my that's always um, good. producers. Okay. Now, my writers. now that you can thank me as the okay. producer, yes. Right. Uh, my mother. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Who always okay. believed that's always in good. me. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. How about anything about the struggle? How difficult it was? Oh, uh, yeah. Wasn't really that difficult. No. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, people. I have not suffered too much adversity in my life as a librarian or, uh, a, or a rock and roll I, fan. Yeah. Wait a minute. Is is librarian known as a like a dangerous job or something? Oh, yeah. Nowadays. Sure. You got, uh, you know, all kinds of people coming into the library. Yeah. Distributing Narcan and, you know, saving what? lives and stuff like that. Yeah. Really? Yep. Oh, you know, yeah. reversing opioid uh, yeah. fatalities. Yeah. Are you telling me that there's like people who like go into the library to you know get high and then oh yeah, just... the bathrooms, the public restrooms. Okay, yeah. okay. But you know, all right, we're public... starting off on a good I note know. today. Uh, let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's book time, and this is a good one, uh, and it's current, very, very current. Yes, it was just released a Tell month us or two it. ago. Um, the title of the book is Face It by Debbie Harry of Blondie. Uh-huh. And um, it's a really cool book physically. I'm glad I didn't read it on an electronic right. book version because it's um, just chock full of um, lovely fan art and photography of Debbie. So the fan art are paintings and other, you know, multimedia graphic projects that people have done of Debbie, most common being her face, which is one of the reasons she titled the book Face It. (laughs) Well, she's got a pretty nice face. She does. She has a very beautiful, unusual face. So the other um, reason she called the book Face It was the amount of times that she's been photographed because she's a very much, much photographed woman and also having to face her history again after having lived it. So she Layers upon this, layers. Yep. I and love it. There's lots of reasons. Uh, she wrote this with an author called Sylvia Simmons. And it says it's based on a series of recent exclusive interviews. So um, I'm not sure how much pen to paper Debbie took or whether this was all based on interviews, but it reads very easily. It's really a nice conversational style and it's um, got all these really incredible paintings and drawings throughout it. And um, 
Yeah, and it was just published a month or two ago. Well, that sounds awesome. So let's get into it. Uh, I guess we should probably start with a song to remind everybody of just how awesome and uh, significant that uh, Blondie as an act was. So let's start with something most people are going to know. I think we should go with Dreaming, huh? Yes, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, one of those uh, seminal bands, if I can use that word uh, again, out of the uh, Hillies little joint down in the Bowery, CBGBs. Yep. These guys are are one of the first, if I I remember right, to to really make it. And and they're early, like 75, 76. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're fronted with what basically is a supermodel, uh, although I doubt she had the height of, to actually be one of no. those, but she definitely <laughs> had the face. Yeah. And this, you know, this whole attitude that just is transcendent and palpable through all of her music. There is not a voice like it. You know, I, I wouldn't say she's got a great voice, but there's something really interesting about it whenever you hear it's the it. attitude. Yeah, attitude. Totally, yeah. 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 And I remember, you know, like, you said them becoming big in 75. That was when I graduated from high school and head off to college. And Blondie is a real part of the fabric of the first few years of my life of independence in um, in Berkeley and Oakland in oh, those days. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a soft spot in my heart for Blondie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think uh, she started off as uh, Blondie, Blonde, or no. Debbie no. Uh, in any of those, right? No, no. In fact... Um, She was adopted at three months of age Mm. Mm. by the family, the Harry family, and um, her given name was Angela, and they changed her name to Deborah when they adopted her. She was the love child of a married man and his lover, but then, you know, was a a put up for adoption, adopted by the suburban middle class family in New Jersey. And, you know, one of the things that she says in the book is that she had a big personality on the inside, but not the outside when she was a child. So she had all these kind of fantasies and love of fashion and fantasies about being a star and that kind of thing. But she grew up in this very, you know, conservative suburban home and dressed very conservatively until she got to high school. And then she started, you know, sewing her own clothes and going to thrift stores and really 
wanting to stand out and be kind of uh, artistic and bohemian. That was her vision for herself. And she found out she was adopted at about um, age four and credits that with having anxieties about being separated and abandoned that kind of stayed with her throughout her life. Yeah. uh, Um, Which a lot of adoptive people yeah uh, experience yes, because that's a yeah. big big loss to think that you you know you were separated from your birth family and then you don't oh, quite the, fit I can in imagine where you all are all the questions that yeah. uh, that come along with yeah. that there's no two ways uh, that you wouldn't feel abandonment issues uh, regardless of how much love and affection you're getting from uh, you know your adoptive parents there's always that question in the back of your mind um, uh, something that I didn't know, you just don't even think about this, is that, you know, she was born in 45. You know, you think of her as an 80s, you know, superstar, but she's kind of like fits in the age bracket of more like the 60s mm-hmm. bands and things yeah. like that. And it's interesting because a lot of the first songs that Blondie did were based on girl group, kind of 60s girl group and she would really loved, you know, the Shangri-Las and that whole kind of 60s dance music yeah, thing. And they incorporated the, a lot of that into their songs, but made it, you know, a little subversive, like with the lyrics and everything. Yeah, yeah. You can hear that influence definitely yeah. in there. So she started dyeing her hair blonde. She's a natural brunette at age 14 because she identified strongly with Marilyn Monroe. Mm. her vulnerability and femaleness and she wanted to be platinum blonde Mm -hmm. and she you know did all the things a lot of teenage girls do experimenting with makeup boyfriends and sex which she liked more than she was supposed to as she says (laughs) some of us did yes yeah we all find out that we're lied to quite a bit when we're children huh Mm -hmm. don't do that you'll go blind yeah Anyway, so, you know, after, you know, she was of more of a teenage age, like 16, 17, she started taking the bus to New York City and loved Greenwich Village. Yeah, because she get... grew up in New Jersey, right? Yeah, she okay, was a yeah. suburban so, so girl. So close by. Right. Mm-hmm. So she graduated from high school in 63 and then went to community college for an AA in arts and then found a job in New York City and moved there for a while to the Lower East Side and met all of those fascinating people that were um, doing avant-garde and kind of experimental stuff in New York City at the time. She wanted to be a painter, but she got drawn more and more into music and realized that she wanted to be a performer. And everywhere that she went in New York City, of course, there was really interesting musical kinds of stuff going on. For example, she walked into this club called the Balloon Farm, and there was the Velvet Underground playing. And Warhol, Andy Warhol, was designing the sets and the lighting for Velvet Underground. And she was really attracted to that, you know, that type of person and that group of people to hang out with. She saw Janis Joplin perform And she got a job at the first head shop in New York City called The Head Shop, (laughs) The Head Shop, which was a good place to meet people who wanted to break the rules, which is what she wanted to do. Well, that sounds like a good name for the first head shop in uh, The Head Shop. (laughs) Very straightforward. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No questions here. Uh, You know exactly what you're getting into. Uh. And and then anyway, so for her musical career, finally, she met up with uh, an old high school friend 
and her husband to sing backups and duets in a band called Wind and the Willows, which was a psychedelic folk band. Oh, so that's this was her first that real band. That was her first band, band okay. that she was in. Uh-huh. And um the the producer of the album What year is this? Do you know? 68. So, oh, see see again, it is just fascinating that you just don't think of her as being so much in that 60s uh, milieu. But once you realize it, you're like, oh, wow. Okay, that makes a lot of sense with what comes later. Right. And, you know, everybody, a lot of people in that day, like Chrissy Hine, she struggled for years, you know, playing music with people and then going to London and, you know, soaking stuff up and just playing around and finally finding the people that she wanted to make the pretenders with. So I think that's kind of what happened with Debbie. So anyway, I thought it would be fun to listen to a song from the Wind in the Willows band called Wheel of Changes, which is a duet with the male singer in the band. Okay. Name I can't remember. All right. All right. Uh, let's get to it, though. What What is it called again? Wheel of Changes. I've never heard this. Wheel of Changes. <laughs> One and one, two, three, or four, and ABC come looking for a place someone thinks you ought to live in. Curious for sandbox walls that fade into darkened halls, women with no face at all. Disappointed, tell you how to come on smiling. sure that wasn't a skit on Saturday Night Live. I know. <laughs> it sounds like, it's like a parody of what it's supposed to be. It's, uh, yeah. They're like a bad version of the Mamas and the Papas. <laughs> oh, well, you'll be happy to know that she left them shortly thereafter. Um, yeah. Good choice. Yeah. One of the reasons, because this, they didn't perform very much, and she had no influence, which is good to know that if she'd had influence, it wouldn't have sounded like that. <laughs> One can <Yeah>. hope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no guarantee, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I guess any improvement would be better than, than Sure. That. It's good experience for her, though. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. And of she course. wanted to do something more rock and roll. She really wanted, you know, the rock and roll in her life, and this wasn't really rock and roll. Yeah, but this is 1968, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. I-, I get it. It's that moment it's a little on the the back end of the folk revival uh, scene and and people had already started to move on the sound had already started to get tougher by the by the later 60s certainly 68 and 69 so they wouldn't have been in the musical zeitgeist if you will uh so good for her yeah but again it shows just gosh how far back you know, um, her performing career begins before she becomes, you know, this giant international superstar. Right. So she would have been, what, 23 here, I guess. Um, yeah. 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 So she's making her way, you know, mm-hmm. in the world and meeting people. That's the most important thing to do. So in that vein. I'm sure uh, that was not hard for her to do. No. Not with a face like that. And being so artistic and interested in working on, you know, new projects and stuff. Yeah. She got a job as a waitress at Max's Kansas City in New York City, and that was <laughs> good choice. Totally the place to be seen. Oh yeah, 
There were, like, uh, Andy Warhol took over the back room with his people, Hollywood stars and rock stars, and people like uh, Steve Winwood, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, who was a big tipper, by the way, um, which ah. is nice to know, and Miles Davis uh, so she hung got to, out she there. she got to serve uh, Janis, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Tipped big. She, she loved Janis Joplin. Wow. Uh, the place to be seen. They had a lot of characters hanging out there. Velvet Underground. She said, uh, everyone on the scene did drugs. That was part of the creative process and the social life and was seen as chic and fun. It wasn't scary yet. People weren't mm-hmm. uh, falling yeah. to the left and right from doing drugs. They were still using drugs to kind of stimulate their creative. Expand uh, your mind. Yep. And she even had a left uh, Max's, well, first of all, to move to California very shortly with some uh, rich boyfriend, but then she didn't like it there. So she moved back and she became a Playboy bunny for a few months. Not surprising. Yeah. 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 yeah I think I've seen pictures of her in the Playboy bunny yeah. outfit. Though, you know, she, she said, it's kind of like recruiting for the army. You know, you think it looks <laughs> like fun. And then she got all the training and she got there and realized, oh my God, this is really just hard work it's harder than working at max's and it's not as much fun so she she didn't do that for very long yeah it's just kind of a stepping stone but she did it she can uh, add that to her resume which you know at one time was uh you know, quite uh, chic and exotic uh, to be uh, you know a known playboy bunny Mm -hmm. yeah Um, Although she was never in the magazine or any of that. I don't think so, no. She wasn't um, a centerfold or anything. She was just basically a waitress. Yes, a glorified waitress with some bunny ears. Right, right, right. Yeah. One of the bands that she became good friends with during that time was the New York Dolls in the early 70s. Uh, Um, David Johansson, Sylvain Sylvain, Johnny Thunders, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, they became like really close. And when they wanted to go um, meet the head of Paramount A&R, who was Marty Thaw, do you say Thaw or Thau? T-H-A-U. She borrowed her dad's huge turquoise Buick to drive the dolls and all their girlfriends to meet this guy. And the car broke down on the way and the suburban police came by and were met with this car crammed full of very eccentric looking people with, you know, teased hair and makeup and yeah, the glam, you know, the, the glam, the glam look of the New yeah. York dolls. Right, right. And so somehow she got them to the meeting. And shortly after that, this A&R guy, Marty, uh, quit to be the doll manager and so they got it their start at that time uh-huh. in the bigger world she wanted to be like them but there just weren't women leading rock bands back then but that's really what no, she wanted to do uh none at all yeah uh, you know so I, I mean you could be a female fronted artist of some form kind of all a janice joplin or aretha franklin but it, it wasn't a rock band. Uh, right. I, I guess Janice came the closest to, you know, just fronting a rock band, certainly right. the Big Brother. But, but did um, she consider herself the leader of the band? No, definitely yeah. not. Uh, right. Although, you know, she was the one that got plucked out and turned into a superstar. So, right. You know. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, one kind of misstep Debbie made along the way here was that she uh, got into a relationship with a man who was a house painter in New Jersey. So she went back to live with him in New Jersey. 
but was still going into the city for, you know, her social life. And it turned out he didn't like that too much. He was the first warning signs were that he was very controlling. He didn't want her to have her own life. And um, when she went her own way, he got very possessive. And so she broke up with him. But after that, the problem wasn't over because he started stalking her. And at one point he broke into her house while she was there alone and scared the shit out of her. And, you know, eventually she had to move to get away from him. So Mm. she moved back to New York City and started her own life there and finally kind of shook him loose. Um, Later on, she wrote a song about this, which we will visit, you know, during the uh, next part of our podcast. Oh, 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 a little secret uh, to be revealed at a later time. Yep, that's right. Awesome. Okay. All right. So uh, get us out of the wind in the willows. Yes. Uh, Well, that's 68. I'm sure we're starting to get into the mid 70s here. Certainly, if uh, if she's right, the 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 beginning of the beginning 70s. uh, She actually got together with two other ladies, Elda Gentile and Amanda Jones, to perform a a girl group called the stilettos mm-hmm. yeah. which is a good name for yeah. a now that one i'd heard about the uh-huh. stilettos so they did rock and roll r&b and show tunes and just kind of um experimenting with different things that three women could do with their voices and they had their oh, first okay. gig yeah like the girl group so she's always had this fascination with the the girl groups yeah yeah she, she loved um yeah, yeah all those girl groups yeah she was definitely a, a girl 60s music kind of um aficionado yeah uh-huh um so they went out to do their first gig and was just like friends and stuff but for some reason she got really scared she got cold feet so she decided to focus on this silhouette in the darkness and sang her songs to that person not knowing who it was and guess who it turned out to be Somebody uh, very important that she didn't know and that she felt like she had a psychic connection to. Chris Stein. Yes, Chris Stein. She was drawn to him as if by a magnet. I wonder if Chris Stein could be considered Debbie Harry's muse. Maybe. Maybe he could be on, covered on muses. That's something to bring up with yeah. uh, Shanti and Lynx. So he started playing um, bass. Muses don't have them. to be female. They I know. Male, that's what right? I'm trying to say. I know. I know. I know. So, uh, okay. So stilettos, stilettos, yeah. stilettos. And okay. uh, yeah. So we have a song from the stilettos. And, um, you know, Chris Stein, of course, turned out to be her friend, collaborator and lover for 13 yeah. years and mm-hmm. then collaborator for more than that. And the only song I could find of theirs on YouTube is called Anti-Disco. And she actually sings back up. There's lots of harmonies in, in this band, which was something she really um, enjoyed. Yeah. Isn't Chris in the band? Isn't he? Yeah. He, yeah, yeah. He started playing bass with uh, them. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So <laughs> we're going to play uh, Anti-Disco uh, by the Stilettos. <laughs> Well, um, 
not much of an improvement over the folk band, uh, but well, uh, different direction. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, early, early punk, uh, but a real attempt at trying to uh, convey, you know, the nihilism of punk uh, there. Um, but um, I'm glad she moved on. <laughs> she did eventually but first they had this um you know they really did it up they had a an actual musical theatrical director oh. um to help them with their stage presence and their costumes they you know were really mm, into helps. kind of getting things from thrift stores and working them up into some stylish thing and uh, this guy named Tony Ingracia mm-hmm. was their image coordinator choreographer And he was also well-connected, which wasn't a bad thing. He had worked with Andy Warhol. He worked on the the musical Fame on Broadway. And he worked with Bowie's management company. So he pushed them to deliver the feelings. He was into method acting. And she thought that was uh, really the best thing for her at that point, you know, that she had been working on the technical um, capabilities of singing. But this was really uh, helpful for her to, you know, really be trained in this way in expressing feelings and, you know, getting the picture across of what you were trying to portray. And, well, creating um, a full character to present on stage right and through method acting um this becomes uh, something that i guess you can turn on and turn off at will right um okay okay i see where we're going and i think this kind of plays into her later you know creation of the blondie character Mm -hmm. um but one of the first good things they got out of it was because this guy had a connection with david bowie david bowie came to actually see them play and brought his wife, his then wife, Angie. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. okay. And she said they had the coolest, most fucked up crowds in their audience, <laughs> <laughs> which was cute. Um, yeah, so anyway, but this is the pivotal point at which they actually form Blondie because she and Chris left the band, the Stilettos, and um, f- formed their partnership, with, which they have till this day, this yeah, musical yeah, yeah. partnership. Yeah, there's and been what, breaks, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we just she, we just saw him a couple of months ago, and you know Chris was there uh, uh, right along with her. Yeah, she claims they have a psychic uh, partnership too. She's definitely down with the psychic stuff, mm-hmm. and she wanted to do what the dolls were doing, but she couldn't have done any of that without Chris. So they were really definitely a working partnership. Um, they added some Fred Smith on bass and Billy O'Connor on drums. And the first band name they had for this band was Angel and the Snake. (laughs) Yeah. So. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And in this iteration, they opened for the Ramones at CBGB. And then they became uh, Blondie and the Bonsai Babies. Getting there. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they named her Blondie after the cartoon character, you know, right. in uh, the Bumsteads. And they had backup singers, you know, female backup singers. And they so were, Debbie was out front. She was out front. But and then she, uh, they weren't the stilettos, were they? No, no. They, okay. they were Blondie and the Bonsai Babies. Oh. <laughs> and eventually they became just Blondie. But in this early stage, they did a lot of girl group songs. They covered Beach Boys. They sang Lady Marmalade, and she wanted to bring the dancing back to rock and make this a crossover between glam rock and punk. 
Okay. That was their vision. Not bad. Not yeah. a bad way to go, especially uh, 74, 75. Yeah. Uh, you know, glam is kind of, yeah, it's at its peak and we're beginning to wane here by, by that. Uh, and then this new sort of aggressive sound is uh, out in the streets of uh, New York City there, uh, you know, hence, you know, what we now call punk, right? Right. Yeah. And they were right in the middle of it. At this time, they, uh, she and Chris wrote the song Rip Her to Shreds, mm, mm-hmm. and they kept playing and experimenting and eventually just became Blondie. So let's have a listen to Rip Her to Shreds, one of the first songs they wrote together. Awesome. Let's do it. Yeah, I, I remember hearing that song and just thinking, ooh, it was so catty, but yeah. it was really fun. <clears throat> yeah. You know, to be able to be that catty, just like really on, you know, out there with it and not hiding it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and it, it, it's just like it's fully formed here. Uh, mm-hmm. This is Blondie. There's no two ways about it. And, you know, the, the, the songs that we played up uh, till now, oh, they are train wrecks. Uh, this is cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that combination of kind of the soft girl group thing with them coming in with their... You know, the male voice is coming in. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's really, really well, a cool. Uh, you record. know, it's funny. I, again, uh, uh, you know, we saw Blondie here a couple of months ago and she opened for Elvis Costello. And I can hear a little of that Elvis Costello and the uh, attractions, uh-huh. you know, that the, the sneering, the, the Steve Naive sort of uh, keyboard in the background. And yeah. yes, uh, the Elvis uh, sneering, uh, you know, which was, again, it's, uh, Part of the punk it's one of the punk sensibility. Yeah. 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 I mean, Tom Petty had some sneering for sure too <laughs> yeah it win that southern drawl kind of way but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she goes on to you know say that okay this was the beginning of the first seven years of the blondie insanity and it's hard to remember the fun and funny times uh when you know looking back on it because as we will see it took a big toll on her life the the first seven years of blondie First, they let Billy, the drummer, go, and um, because maybe you don't really know that name, because shortly no, thereafter, we have Clem Burke. and on the yeah, on the first album, we have Clem Burke. Now they had open auditions for the new drummer, and they had fifty responses. Their ad that went out was "Freak Energy Rock Drummer Wanted," <laughs> so he was the very last one they heard. And he was the one that they knew was the right one. And then their bass player left to join the band Television. That was Fred Smith. Yeah. 
So they almost broke up at that time because they were so shocked that Fred left. But Clem, who had just come on, was so enthusiastic about playing with them that he kind of shored them up and kept them going until they could hire somebody else, who was Gary Valentine. Yeah. Um, Now, he looked like he should be in a rock band, which is one of the reasons they hired him. (laughs) He was a guitar player, but he replaced Fred on bass for a while Mm -hmm. in the early part of the time. Well, I can see why Fred would leave Blondie for television with hindsight of course that seems ridiculous but television is is really ahead of the curve uh, yeah. right at that moment and they look like they're about ready to break out and hit it big of which they didn't but uh, they're very influential yeah uh, you know they're one of the first to really get out of uh, CBGBs and become you know something uh, for a short period of time yeah I gotta but, I gotta go back and uh, delve into them some more because yeah. I've been reading a lot about them yeah their name keeps coming up, yeah, right? yeah, it does yeah, over yeah, and over. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of CBGBs, that it was still a dive bar at that time, and they, Blondie, <laughs> I think it was a dive bar the whole time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they played there every weekend for seven months straight, and they were paid in beer, not money. Oh uh, yeah. And the crowd was, you know, just a combination of their friends, other bands, and all the downtown artists and freaks. Yeah. So it was really a fun time. Um, she talks about how she created this character of Blondie and she considers the character as the lead singer of Blondie. Oh, back to this method as a character. Sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a partly a visual homage to Marilyn Monroe's character and um, partly a statement about the double standard. She felt that Marilyn Monroe was playing a character, the proverbial dumb blonde, and there were smarts behind her act, but her acting wasn't given credit. And now Debbie feels that her Blondie character was actually sort of androgynous. And I know that sounds kind of surprising to people because we think of her as the, you know, prototypical female femme fatale. Mm -hmm. But she actually says these words. She felt like she was playing a transsexual creature. She was a woman playing a man's idea of a woman. But she was an artistic, ass-kicking, assertive woman in girl drag. It's kind of interesting to think about, like in this day of binary, you know, like we really talk a lot about how people, yeah, it's on a continuum, you Mm. know, the gender kind of expressions, but she was aware of that even back then, you know, because uh, obviously a lot of the people that she hung out with were men in drag and people expressing themselves in all ways. It was a very, you know, accepting time period. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I don't know, accepting time period, but it was definitely... Amongst this crowd. Yeah, yeah. If you were in the club, you were exposed to uh, people uh, living a more free existence of who they felt they were. Right. Uh, Which nowadays, you know, we we as a society are beginning to embrace, but certainly was not the case back then. No, not in the larger society. Yeah, for yeah. sure but yeah. uh, but she would learn from that i can see that uh, yeah it's difficult for me to think of anything uh, other than you know this incredibly striking woman with all this attitude it's not surprising to hear that it's a bit of an act uh you know that's common in in any artistic endeavor is to build this persona it's almost like a shield in some ways uh and it is an accepted uh character to the audience it's easily 
digestible to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of great artists uh, have done this, especially performing artists, and especially in rock and roll, because this is a 24-7 character that you have to... Maintain. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it can be uh, quite destructive and uh and confusing uh there's been plenty of bios uh of where you know the character you know overtakes the 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 person uh, most famously alice cooper uh you know has commented on this uh, numerous times but uh you know i think this happens to just about uh everybody i mean if anybody's seen the recent uh, uh, Elton John biopic, Rocket Man, you know, it's a big theme about that is Mm. uh, to create this character that's bigger and larger than life than you are, that uh, uh, at once you can hide behind, but, uh, you know, at the same time takes over Mm -hmm. your actual existence and then it creates conflict and a lot of uh, horrible things end up happening before you kind of figure out a way to live with that other person who you've created inside yourself Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's interesting Uh, and doesn't seem like that's what happened to debbie no it sounds like she was able to actually straddle that better than most yeah yeah you know but at the time when she was doing that i i mean i was you know 20 or something, 19, it didn't really occur to me that she was playing a character. You know, I thought that was her. So I'm not sure what point she was getting across if people didn't understand that's what she was doing. I I think, you know, in the the book, you know, she's able to reflect over a lifetime here uh, that I'm betting a a good bit of this was subconscious Mm -hmm. uh, at the time. Right. You know, and and now, uh, you know, with hindsight, she's been able to say, ah, you know, I did this and I did that to make a statement utilize some inspirations that I had, uh, like the the method acting thing, mm-hmm. and present something that would uh, commercially be viable. Uh, and I mean commercially in a good way, not, you know, a selling out way, but just, right. uh, you know, a package that... People uh, would respond exactly, to. Exactly. That, yeah. that, that's my point. Yes. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, she also, besides that creation of this character, she looks back and she always considers herself that she was a punk. I mean, that this was part of all the confluence of things that came into creating New York punk, that she was part of that. And she... And she was. And she, um, yeah, that sensibility was something that really took hold of her, you know, breaking down walls and boundaries and and you know being artistic and creating something new mm-hmm. that was not just rehashing stuff but creating something new out of the influences that she had which was part of what the beginning of punk at least you know before you had to dress a certain way or sound a certain way to be punk it was the idea was all about just f- stirring things up and creating something new mm-hmm. there weren't you know norms about it well, I like, like the idea of, of, you know, taking the Marilyn Monroe image and throwing it on its head and uh, giving her, you know, the ultimate agency, mm-hmm. uh, which Marilyn did not have. Right, uh, right. And being in your face and just the sexy girl who knows that she is all and uh, a bag of chips. <laughs> right. Well, thank goodness Debbie, you know, uh, exerted more control over her life than 
poor Marilyn did. Well, I think she also had a great partner in Christine yeah. who, right. you know, really recognized that she was an equal right. and utilized that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, me- I remember her saying at one point that when they were really famous, it was really annoying for people when they got interviewed together, you know, that l- a lot of the questions would be around. To him, probably. Chris. Yeah. yeah. How does it feel being, <laughs> you know, the boyfriend of this uh, sex symbol that every man in America wants? And it's like, what? That's not why he's with her. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, obviously he's attracted to her, but that, yeah, you're right. I mean, he did have, a, she did have a partner that really saw her. The first song that they recorded as a demo was the Shangri-Las, or not, not the first one, but one thing they recorded as a demo, let's just say, was the Shangri-Las out in the street, which is telling because this is, you know, the, her girl group fascination. They all love the Shangri-Las and it became a famous song for them. And I think that they do it really well, but with just a little twist of, you know, irony that you would need in a punk song. Mm-hmm. So can we play that, please? No. Out in yes, the streets. Yes, of course we can play I love this. That. Okay, so out yeah. in the streets, but this is Blondie's version of yeah. Out in the Streets. He don't hang around with a gang no more. He don't do the wild things that he did before. Well, there's definitely that girl group influence, which we'll hear throughout the career of the of the band. And there's Debbie doing all the voices. She doesn't need uh, background singers anymore. <laughs> so she's, she's doing them all herself. Uh, yeah, it's a nice, uh, interesting, I wouldn't call it punk. I think now it's we're getting to the beginnings of what's called new wave, right? Yeah, but I think the punk part of this song is her kind of deadpan delivery, which is really, I think, different mm. from the original. Mm-hmm. You know, how she's yeah. just kind of, and then in the middle of the song, you know, she breaks out and starts belting it more, but it's just very spare and um, and kind of deadpan, but then it builds into this more luscious thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they did um, add... A band member at this point, Jimmy Destry, is keyboard player. I believe he's still with them. Yeah, I don't think think Jimmy's with them. Um, No, I guess not. Okay, so he was. uh, It was with them for quite a while, Jimmy Destry on keyboards. So you know, all this time they're struggling and they're recording things, but they, um, you know, found that uh, other bands around them were getting record deals and they weren't and you know this is the tenacious part of really being an artist and a creator and not giving up and saying okay never mind we're gonna you know get jobs in the factory or go home and marry the boy next door and have babies or something they just kept kept going and um, what you gotta do yeah plan b and finally, you know, they built a following. They played around a lot. They built a following. And finally, they got a record deal with a 
company called Instant Records. And their first um, song that they recorded for um, Instant Records gave them enough buzz for them to get an album deal with that company. So the first one they recorded was they first entitled Sex Offender, but they had to change it to X Offender because apparently you can't have the word sex as the title of a song. <laughs> Not really, then. Really dumb. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, because it's in the song, but it can't be the title of the song. And it was partly about this uh, ridiculous statutory rape allegation against Gary Valentine who was their band member and he was only 18 but he was having he before he turned 18 he was having a you know he had a girlfriend who was 16 or 17 and the parents didn't like him and they waited till he was 18 to accuse him of statutory rape and so he was on trial he had to go into hiding and all this stuff so that was part of the the reason for them writing um, this song, and also is a little bit about the criminalization of hookers, which she found part of the double standard of men and women. And it's about a cop and a hooker who fall for each other, and written very quickly. So, yeah, so let's let's listen to to X Offender. X Offender. Which was on their first album, Blondie. Right. Yeah, that, that's the first one that really sounds a lot like Blondie. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's like Fully, their yeah. sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this was the beginning, of course, of their success after they issued the album Blondie came out in 1977. Uh, she describes their success like being strapped to a rocket and ready to be launched. It was ro- riotous, breathless, restless, and crazy. And they went on the road in February 1977 and stayed on the road for quite a while. Uh, they went to Los Angeles and had a um, what a residency at the Whiskey A Go Go, um, and because the whiskey at that time was looking for something new and fresh, and uh, they signed a five-year management contract with someone named Peter Leeds, which was a big mistake because they were stuck with him for a long time. Mm. But this was the beginning of, you know, they were played on the radio and there was a Blondie fan club. Tom Petty opened for them the first week that they were at the Whiskey and the second week they played with the Ramones. So it was all this confluence of L.A., you know, the Whiskey being kind of revived and a center for all this fun stuff and all the people that were there to be seen and yeah the early la seen. punk scenes beginning to develop uh, as well you know where we're going to get uh, x and the blasters and the go-go's yep. Yep. and uh, bands like that so which we've covered yeah yeah well, under the big black sun that's right, right. Mm-hmm. which there's a, a sequel to which i haven't read but everybody should read it you know we're uh, we're gonna have a new podcast that is hosted by uh one of those folks who were uh, a big part of that scene. Really? Mm-hmm. Should I guess now or later? Later. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
So um, after that, they were tapped by Iggy Pop. He was going on his first tour, or they were going on their first real tour, but it was opening for Iggy Pop, who had David Bowie on the bill with him. Which oh, was this David. is when David was playing keyboards. With. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that tour is, uh, it doesn't really work very well because nobody wants to pay attention to Iggy. They're all like, oh my God, David Bowie was right there. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Of course, it was thrilling, though, for Blondie to oh, be I bet. chosen to go on the tour. They were starstruck. They were having so much fun. They played, you know, 20 shows and they got a lot of advice from Iggy and David on uh, using the big stage and how to, you know, work a crowd and watching them work was really helpful in the um, development of Blondie. And she had her first experience of being the only woman on the road with all guys, even though she was in a relationship with Chris. One night, Debbie took David and Iggy up to her room because she wasn't really that into cocaine, but she had some, so she wanted to share it with them. I know and, this story. Yeah, and apparently um, Bowie took out his cock to Afterwards. show her. And she said he did that with men and women alike. That was yeah. one of his little cute things he liked to well, do. Well, he was uh, giving her uh, props for supplying uh, some good drugs. Okay. So, uh, and, but yeah. Uh, and uh, my understanding is that she uh, wasn't bothered by it no, eh, and uh, was rather impressed. She saw, thought it was funny, adorable, and sexy. <laughs> <laughs> she makes a joke about how they must have thought she was the cock check girl. Uh -huh. said the coat check girl. Yeah. yeah and they yeah. all had fun. But then they came home and then they went out on their own tour to England. And it wasn't as much fun as going out with David and Iggy. And they were introduced to UK punk and the fun pogo that uh, the UK punks were doing at oh, the, the time. Oh, the pogo. Yes. The yeah. pogo dance. Right. So, yeah, so they came home to two great reviews and new fans and went to work on Plastic Letters, which was their second album, mm -hmm. 1978. But unfortunately, by this time, they, they spent some time and money changing labels um, to Chrysalis Records, and they got $1 million in debt. Ouch. Wow. That's called Funny not how that very happens, good management. Huh? I know. Yeah. The record crazy. business. Yeah. <laughs> And then they added their new bass player, Nigel Harrison, who comes back into the story. Mm, mm. And um, But, you know, it was a lot of pressure. And as she says, it was especially hard on Chris because they all had pressure, but Chris had the extra pressure of being protective of Debbie and taking care of her. And he wasn't a macho guy. He's a very intelligent, introspective man. And he had this extra added kind of job of being Debbie's kind of bodyguard. Yeah. yeah. That must have been really tough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause, cause we every she's... schmuck uh, who thinks he's got a face is going to hit on her uh, wherever she's available. Yep. Yeah. Though, I don't know. I, if I were a man, I don't think I'd go there just because she's, you know, she seems very aloof and kind of unapproachable. Suit yourself. Yeah. I'm not a man, so... Anyway, the single off that record was Denise, which was the male version. Isn't it spelled Denis? D-E-N-I-S, -E the, the French male version of the cover of the song, 
by Randy and the Rainbows from Queens. Their version was called Denise, about a girl Denise, D-E-N-I-S-E. But this one was Denise. I don't know. Would you pronounce that? She seems to sing Denise. So that Mm. seems like the S would be dropped off in French. But anyway. Denise. Denise. Well, we'll just have to take a listen. Yes. Let's hear Dennis, Denise, Denise, whatever you prefer. Denise, Denise. Denise, Denise. you agree Denny. <laughs> Denny. yeah fun fun yeah. song fun song yes uh, like fun. you said punky uh, glammy dancey yep right she, she she wanted to get people off their asses and back onto the dance floor right yeah so they um their next album Uh-oh, they're already getting into a next album like in the same year they released parallel lines yeah, which of course is the album the that everybody album, knows yeah, yeah. Um, in late 1978. I know, 1978. Yep. Oh, it was only yesterday. They had a different producer, Mike Chapman, um, who brought out the best in them. And um, the record company, though, oddly, didn't think there were any hits on that album. Really? Which, uh, really. And, and as Mike, their producer, said, we're not redoing it. So get used to it. Get used to it. And you know, yeah, ironically, really? some so, of their ha- best known songs. Yeah, are on hanging that on album. the telephone, one way or another. Picture this: Heart of Glass. Yeah, I question this all the time. You know, these guys who think they're so fucking smart. I know. What do uh, they know? And get paid all this money to control this, and our time and time again shown that they don't know what the fuck they're doing, and that it's something out of left field is actually the thing that. Uh, That's right. That hits. Yeah, this one was super popular. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Let's listen to one way or another. This was uh the song I was referring to that was written about her. Her ex-boyfriend, New York Stalker. Oh. And and she takes a really good, you know, like that point of view. She sounds really kind of a little scary on this um, oh, record. Like she's going to get him. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. It's yeah. really like that was what was really interesting about I, this song, I think, is that a woman was being really. Yeah. Aggressive. Creepy. Be, yeah. Creepy. Creepily. Ex- aggressive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, in some ways is uh, not so bad. Did you see the movie Fatal Attraction? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a little bit much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I totally. Yeah. When I listened to the song, it was definitely a stalker, but it was her as the stalker. Yeah. But uh, she just transposed it uh, from her personal experience. Right. All right. All right. Let's listen. I love that song. Okay. All right. All right. One way or another.
the quintessential Blondie song. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to pick one, that's got to be it, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Were you scared when you (laughs) listened to it? Well, uh, (laughs) yeah. I I mean, I I totally get the the stalker angle. Uh, you know, you you can look at it as, uh, again. It's it's a layered song. You can look at it from a t- couple of different angles, such as a fan who you know is going to meet their hero, and then once she achieves the goal, she wants to get away at the end. Yeah. Uh, and uh, nothing have nothing to do with uh, give you, know, you the slip. Yeah. Her yeah. Uh, you know her intended target. Yeah. Uh, sort of thing. I mean, it, everything comes together, and and now now this is a hit machine here, right? Yep. Yeah. And this was uh, definitely one of the ones that, uh, you know, like you said, is the quintessential uh, Blondie song. Of course, another one that's on that album, we can't really, you know, there's so many songs on that album that need talking about, but we can't talk about all of them. But the other one um, was a song, they renamed it Heart of Glass, but they had previously recorded it as a song called Disco Song. And it was supposed to be um, you know, up to kind of a a a, a spoof on disco, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the new version was more electro. Everything was built around the synth track. And mm-hmm. well, she did have a song uh, in the previous band called right. uh, "Disco Sucks," right? Yeah. Or, or not "Disco Sucks." So yeah, and but the whole point about you know punk was kind of like anti-disco. So this yeah. song. Uh, pissed off the rock and punk critics both so pissed (laughs) off people on both sides but chris said that it made them punk in the face of punk oh so they were punking the disco i don't care Um, what you want to call it yeah it's it's a great song but they even have on the on the music video they even have a disco ball on it yeah um yeah so this one is another quintessential uh blondie song and it's actually the one that they played when they were inducted on the to the rock and roll hall of fame which was which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes 2006 all right so let's hear a little of heart of glass fantastic dreamy song i mean it's a hit spelled all over it but what you were talking about uh these made-up terms these genres to separate people Mm -hmm. divide uh you know one thing that we've determined in our pursuit of this rock and roll archaeology is that you know let's just call this the rock and roll age and you know uh begins in the mid 50s uh and uh continues uh, uh even today in some format but the further we get used to this 
you know, these artificial delineators don't really exist. Uh, I guess it's a disco song, but it doesn't exactly sound like a disco song. And besides, what is a disco song? It's still got a backbeat to it, and it is uh, very much uh, a product of of its times, regardless of who's right. playing it. And the genres bleed into each other, too, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, to get all the grief at the time just seems ridiculous to me. Yeah. A, a, a good song is a good song is a good song. And, uh, you know, the first time you hear that, you know, and thankfully the public knew better and said, no, that's a great song. I don't right. care what you call it. I mean, you can play it at a disco for uh, sure. sure. Yeah. 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 It's not a rocker. No, know. but a metalhead wouldn't think that anything that Blondie does is quote unquote a rocker. Right. You know, so, right. you know, again, that's true. Yeah. But I'm glad yeah. we got to play a little of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. You know, she, um, she talks a lot about being photographed so much, not just by her boyfriend, Chris Stein, who most of, you know, many of the excellent photographs of her are by him and uh, Robert Mapplethorpe, Richard Avedon, Roberta oh, God, Bailey, yeah. Chucky Mick Davis. Rock, uh, obviously, Andy Warhol, famously. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And so this is one of the things she kind of segues into talking about her movie career, you know, that she was a visual person, you know, like what I mentioned at the beginning of the story, which was that she wanted to be a painter yeah so she, all of these areas of artistic endeavor were interesting to her mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. and it's not a surprise that having this look and being interested in performing that she got into movies and television yeah which she did in between all of these musical projects starting with the first uh, movie that she was in which was called union city which was an art house movie and she really enjoyed it so much that she took movie opportunities whenever she could. Hey, David so, Cronenberg's Videodrome. Yeah. And kind of oddly, the, the record companies didn't want them to branch out into different projects, which she thought was weird because they could have capitalized, you know, said, Again, oh, and while you're seeing this movie, right. you know, like they have an out, you know, she is also a singer. So you might want to, you know, listen to her album. Yeah. Yeah. Good press, bad yeah. press. As long as they're talking about you, that's all that matters. And that's right. Yeah, so. it, it could have helped. It de- definitely helped, especially when you look like Debbie Harry. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. There's a reason why she's one of the most photographed women of the 20th century. That's right. And would want to be in movies, or movies would want her to would be. Would want in her. Them, yeah. So. <laughs> and plus, it turned out she was a good actress too. So. Yeah. Yeah. So their um their next uh, album was Eat to the Beat. Mm-hmm. Um, which was the first one, as she said, they made with knowing there was an audience waiting for it because, you know, they knew now they were big and they could make a, an album and there would be people waiting for it. She actually says a lot of the songs on the album are pretty minimal. They wrote them very quickly. And uh, one of the ones that uh, they wrote super quickly was one that Jimmy Destry came up with this um, spaghetti Western type music and Debbie just played around with the lyrics and wrote them in just a few minutes. And that was the record Atomic. Oh, okay. Well, let's uh, get a sampling of that and see if we can hear uh, Enrico uh, Marconi uh, in there. (laughs) Right.
I said Enrico. It's Enio Morricone. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know who that is? He wrote spaghetti westerns. Well, he wrote the music for them, yeah. Yeah. Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. You know that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, can you hear a little of that in there? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, uh, well, there's something. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? You disagree. <laughs> no, I can hear definitely hear the spaghetti western mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. It's totally spaghetti. Total spaghetti. Total spaghetti. With sauce. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. New York sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Italian, New York oh, Italian. Well, sauce. speaking of Italian, so the the next song that that, that was <laughs> you big. just gonna move me off. Of I know. <laughs> I'm tired of this line of questioning. I'm, I'm just on. looking at my notes and I see uh, the words American gigolo, and I thought, isn't gigolo an Italian word? And see, there I did my like stream oh, of consciousness thing. This is how it works. Yeah, that's okay. like the the mind of a, uh-huh. of a genius. All right, let's yeah, go to sure. the gigolo. Uh, <laughs> so so she was um. Asked to sing a song for the movie American Gigolo with Richard Gere. Oh, that right? guy. Yeah. Uh, another face. And the theme song was actually written by Giorgio Moroder. Maroni. No, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Giorgio Moroder. Moroder. Yes, yes, yes. Who was a, the, the hit maker behind Donna Summer. Uh-huh. And he wrote the lyrics, but they were t- way too masculine from the masculine point of view for Debbie. She didn't think she could sing them. Mm-hmm. So she watched the movie and then she wrote her own lyrics after watching the movie. And the first thing she thought about writing, because she was influenced by the image of the beautiful car driving down the coast highway and the you know because he's like drives fancy cars and everything Mm -hmm. so the first lines that came to her while she was watching the movie were color me your color baby color me your car which it's funny because i just covered this song in a jam session and i went like what does that mean color me your color baby color me your car but now i understand because this was about the car driving down the pacific coast highway and the refrain had to be call me because that's what richard Gere's character says and she said the rest wrote itself. It was the biggest selling single of their career. That's right. Wow. Well, let's listen to Call Me. Another great Blondie song there. Yep. Yeah, I'd call her. <laughs> Wouldn't have to ask me twice. Hey. Out well. Down. If I was if I was unmarried. Yeah. Uh me too. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. Okay. So oh, you too. <laughs> oh. Didn't know that about you. No, I, she's not my type. No? No. Really? really? Yep. I think she's anybody's type. Oh, I don't know. No? It's that sculpted face kind of you know, a little too just, much? Yeah, it's just a little like... Intimidating? Intimidating. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Oh, so, All right. but come on. Uh, it's like that's the gold standard, right? I, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Their next album was Auto American. <laughs> oh, it sounds like we hit hit on some uncomfortable spot here. No, 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 no. I don't. I mean, I I appreciate beautiful women for sure. Yeah. 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 Um. So Auto American yeah. was released in 1980. Yes, now, it was. and this one they wanted to make music that crossed boundaries, but this was confusing for the record company mm-hmm. because they did, you know, some disco, they did some like a score to an imaginary film, they did Torch songs by Lerner and Lowe. They did the uh, rock steady reggae uh, song Tide is High, which uh were we're not going to play right now, but that's a really good song. No. So the you know the the record company was like, I don't, we don't like, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. But that's what they wanted to do. And one of the songs that kind of was uh, part of this diversity theme was Rapture, mm-hmm. which she calls a rap song with a downtown rock twist. And um, she says it's it was the first rap song with original music up until then. Rap was done using rhythm tracks and licks from existing songs. So this is her claim. What do you think about that? Um, I, I, I'd have to look to see uh, the veracity of, of that claim. Um, but I will say it is the first number one uh, rap song. Uh, that uh, is... Uh, undisputable Mm -hmm. so that you know rap of course comes out of the the dj world you're spinning uh, two turntables and mostly uh, you're using uh, previously released material Mm -hmm. uh, and then you know finding the uh, the great groove Mm -hmm. uh, and then you know uh, rapping over the top of that so you know with um, rapture the song is all original yes i can see that but um, i don't know we'll look into it while we play the song huh yeah Here's Rapture. Yeah, I, I, a little <laughs> disco rap, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me say that a friend of our show, uh, Lanise Bent, uh, who I uh, interviewed at Deeper Digs in Rock, uh, was the engineer for uh, Auto American. Oh. Uh, you know, she was instrumental in helping to work on this and, and many other songs. So, But I want to bring the song back again real quick to get uh, a bit of the actual Debbie rapping yeah. here where she's name checking some famous uh, rappers yeah, I'd like, uh, to hear like that. Grandmaster Flash so all right real quick some of that Fat five friends on me everybody's side DJ spinning I said my my Flash is fast Flash is cool Francois c'est pas Flash ain't no do and you don't stop shoot shot go out to the parking lot and you get in your car and drive real far and you drive all night and then you see your light and it comes right down and lands on the Go out at night, you eat cars, you eat Cadillacs, Lincoln's 
Yeah, the, um, the interesting thing for me about that song is that, um, in, for example, in the next album that she does, which is a, her first solo album, no. she starts, um, they collaborate, she and Chris, with Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards of Chic. Yeah. And so I can see in Rapture what they're doing is kind of copying a black art form you know like a, a genre yeah, it, of it, rap it's got that now rogers scratch right uh, but but it's like they're yeah. imitating it as a band but in this next project that they work on what they want to do is take two white musicians and two black musicians and really make something new together instead of like one you know they had their niches their kind of genres mm-hmm. and instead of them copying chic or chic copying blondie they decided to do something more collaborative and bring diversity right into the creative process right right so and chic had already had their commercial hits good times and the freak Mm -hmm. and for this next album which was called cuckoo which was her solo solo album yeah her solo album each pair wrote four songs and then they wrote two songs together and this was before Niall Rogers worked with David Bowie on uh, Let's, Let's Dance, Dance mm-hmm. and Madonna, which I'm not sure what album that was, but he they did work with Madonna. So, and she said it was really fun to record. It was um, it came out in '81, and she really loves this album. But the record company wasn't happy with her doing a solo project. They only wanted to do Blondie. So I thought we could listen to the song. Jump, jump, which is on this album, right? And uh, we've got uh, produced two... by Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards. That's right. Mm-hmm. And we have the added interest of having Mark Mothersbaugh and Gerald Casale of Devo singing backup vocals. Oh, on this song. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right, let's listen to Jump, Jump. awesomeness of bernard edwards uh, on bass there huh yeah i know that's really cool that was the first uh, thing that, that popped out on me that guy's a monster and uh, also the cover of uh, cuckoo uh, was created by hr geiger yep. most famously alien uh the image of uh, of alien and you know uh, his style was taking human and machine and mixing them together uh, other other rock and roll artists have uh, have used geiger before in the past um so i do like the 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 concept that nile is uh kind of like putting this production feel together that's going to be taken up by uh david bowie and and turn it into you know this giant awesomeness of uh, the the album let's dance yeah yeah that's really neat i mean david bowie keeps coming back <laughs> into this narrative yeah. about yeah. blondie for sure yeah um yeah they um you know the 
after this album, uh, they they did another Blondie album called The Hunter, which she doesn't really say much about. She started feeling kind of uncomfortable. Um, uh, now know, we're getting recording to the end with of, Blondie. of Blondie yeah. as, as a band. Uh, and she's got a solo career. She's doing movies and uh, and, you know, just the style of music is beginning to change. I can I can understand why why this might not work out. For yeah. Them. And, and I think some other issues are about to yeah. uh, hit us as well. Yeah. When they went on tour with this um, album, Chris got really, really right, sick right. and mm -hmm. he he developed a, um, a rare autoimmune disorder that um, really put him out of the ring for like two or three years. It took him a long time to to recover and he almost died. And Debbie was by his side, you know, he's in the hospital for three months. And uh, by the time he was recovered, the band broke up and um, their record deal was lost and they were about to lose their home. I like her quote here. What else could you be but broke when you sold more than 40 million records? Oh. You're at the top of your career and you've worked nonstop for seven years with no vacation. Of course. Broke <laughs> so is, uh, it's, yeah, is it's the expected. called bad management. Yeah. Yeah. And as she says, if anything they could have done business-wise, they did wrong. Uh -huh. So that's what happened. It took them a long time to kind of dig themselves out of that. Yeah. And the record industry. Uh, at it again. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. So uh, Chris uh, Stein has gotten ill, uh, and the band is kind of fraying. Uh, and I think they just kind of call it quits after uh, The Hunter, right? After about, yeah. about 1984. Yeah, after that, that they had to call off that tour, you know, most of it, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she was and they're busy. And they're gone for like 17, 18 yeah, years. Yeah, 17 years. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember noticing when they got back together either. I thought you so. were going to say, I don't remember the 90s. <laughs> No, but uh, unfortunately, yeah, I do. but she continues doing uh, solo work. Yeah, uh, and, and I think her next album uh, was 1986's uh, Rockbird. Rockbird, right? I I want to say something interesting that I bet you don't know, and maybe you do, but I've just discovered this, and I have to bring it up. So uh, the song that we're gonna play is French Kissing in the USA, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know who wrote that song? Um. It was a woman who sang the original song and submitted it to get them to try to get a record deal, and her version was beautiful, but she got screwed out of the deal. Who? But who wrote the song? Chuck Lorre. Do you know who that is? No. Oh, he's the guy that uh, produced uh, uh, The Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men. Oh, uh, uh, Mike and Molly. Oh, really? No, Young Sheldon. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of American television. Uh, apparently, he composed "Kissing French Kissing" in the USA back in the eighties. Uh, oh. Before all of that, I so, did not know that. Well, we're just gonna have to take a listen now. Yeah. Let's it hear. turned out to be the biggest hit on the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah if you can call that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not a big hit, but a, 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 the biggest of that. So, all right, here's French Kissing in the USA.
glad Chuck Lorre went off to produce television. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's it's just it's got that big '80s sound. It's uh, it is stuck in its time, uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and it's kind of redundant too. I think. I mean, it sounds like some of the other girl yeah. groupy yeah. things yeah. with the yeah. you know. I mean, not it's pleasant. Yeah, oh it's pleasant sure, enough. but it's not you know it's not call me. It's right. not heart of glass. It's right. not some of these other songs that right. we've been playing. Um, uh, but uh, you know, uh, you got to keep on keeping on, right? That's what they say. That's what they say. I'm trying that well, myself. You know, yeah. it's funny. It's it's one of those things that, you know, the, the whole is better than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, and Chris Stein and Debbie Harry are, are a team. And, and without that together, this thing called Blondie, it doesn't quite work as well, does it? No. And he, you know, he was involved in all of her solo yeah, albums, but, too. But on this one, I, I think he wasn't well enough Oh, no. To he's deathly be, ill here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he, he had some, you know, um, input on this album, but he wasn't in the recording studio with her and, you know contributing that way so yeah mm-hmm. i'm sure you can tell shortly after this actually she and chris actually broke up yeah. now she doesn't say too much about that except for that their dynamic had changed so i suppose you know they were always really good at being partners and friends and collaborators in the musical world and they didn't never stop doing that actually well, they, sounds, they continued yeah. to do that but you know whatever the romantic part that kept them together we know that kind of waxes and wanes and it was that part was over well it's just the fact that uh, all the pieces of their relationship remained other than uh, the right. sexual part right uh, so and that's you know, i think that's and, really and still cool, to this actually. day it yeah. seems like they are uh, uh, still as close as ever and i think she says so in the book right? yeah definitely you know that he's just the most important person basically in her life, in her life. Yeah. and even though he's remarried and has kids you know or not remarried he's married you know they still are very close and um yeah in the same uh day that chris and she broke up andy warhol died and that really affected her quite a bit because she was mm. first of all you know he painted her yeah she was close to him she was part of his circle she was on his show Andy Warhol's 15 minutes which was something that he did around that time and um, you know it was like it wasn't just shocking to her personally it was um, changed the the art world and the social life of New York City at the time mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. so and he always supported her and Chris so you know that was a really big deal for her um, luckily, um, not too uh, long after that, John Waters asked her to be in the movie Hairspray in oh, 1988. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was apparently really, really fun for her to do. In fact, everybody that was on the set loved being in that movie and they hated it when they finished production because, you know, it's like, as she said, we just wanted to live in that movie. Yeah. And it was so much fun working with uh, John Waters and Divine even though Divine um, died not too long after the movie was released. 
And yeah. You see, he had an enlarged heart. Yeah. 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 Uh, that crazy divine. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I want to see that movie again because oh, that was the, yeah. really fun and when the, it came the, out. The, yeah. This was not the musical. This was the the movie. Yeah. With I think Sonny Bono. Yep. Uh, Sonny Bono was her husband. Yeah. Yeah. And Ricky Debbie, Lake. Yeah. Ricky Lake. This is what makes Ricky Lake a star. And Rick, Rick Ocasek was even in this movie. I don't yeah, remember who what he played. Just recently passed. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Debbie Harry was Velma von Tussle. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, just a, a crazy, fantastic, wonderful, weird John yeah. Waters movie. So, and it had a really good. It tackled racism too, and mm-hmm. you know, Baltimore, yeah. and it yeah. had a really yeah. good that's, that's social message while still yeah. being fun and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. good. Yeah, one. yeah. And then she continues to make uh, several solo albums mm-hmm. uh, over the the next few decades. None that you know uh, are are in the class of of, of Blondie. Um, does she say anything about that? About uh, you know the difficulty of it, or you know she moved on to maybe not looking for pop stardom, but just uh, you know a creative outlet. Yeah. or Any of that? Yeah, I mean I think that happens to most of the people I read about. You know they become really big, you know in this band that they're in, and then you know they have other things they want to do, and it, they're not is interested in kind of being wildly famous anymore because they've been wildly famous. So, you know, they have some room to do the other things that they wanted to do. So it doesn't sound like she was particularly, you know, disappointed by how her albums were received by record labels and the company, whether they went number one. I mean, I'm sure she was, but she doesn't, you know, really press on that. So well, she still had an, a, an embedded fan base is there. Right. So, yeah. you know, you, you, you have some carte blanche to experiment a bit uh, and still retain, uh, you know, a record buying public. Right. And, you know, one of the projects she worked on in this time period was she started touring with a avant-garde New York jazz band named the Jazz Passengers. And she really liked that because she wasn't the front of the band. You know, she was just the singer in the band. So it wasn't her band. And so she had the freedom just to be a singer. And also jazz is a, is not an easy genre to learn as what she said was all those years in a rock band i have been counting to four and now i was expected to count to six or seven (laughs) (laughs) which really perfectly i remember listening to a live jazz band and going like where's the one beat in all of this like my friend was saying you have to listen to the bass the bass has the tonic that's the one okay Um, you know it's a training experience yes yeah yeah. and she had to learn a whole bunch of new songs expanding her horizons yeah oh all right yeah Yeah, well, well she did four solo albums uh, from I think 82 to uh, I think 93 94 was her last one uh, and then like Blondie kind of gets back together yeah, in later that was 90s, at the right? Chris's idea Chris uh-huh. called and said let's get Blondie back together and she said you must be mad <laughs> the drugs the illness the financial ruin you know like what was what was good about that she had felt lucky they got out of it alive because so many of their other friends were already gone right. but chris talked her into it and um when they got the band back together of course this is like the the story of snow white and the well i'm going really astray here but you know the 
the godmothers that were brought to her um, christening, and there was one left out, and she became the evil stepmother, yeah, or, or the, the evil, uh, the the evil, evil queen, right. witch, or oh, whatever. Oh yeah. So, so basically, they we're, gathered we're, we're everybody. We're mixing our brother Grimm uh, around here, but yes, I yeah, get you. they mm-hmm. they gathered um, Clemberg, Jimmy Destry, and Gary Valentine back together, but they did not invite or welcome Nigel Harrison and Frank Infanti into the reunion, and those. Uh, former members unsuccessfully sued to prevent the reunion under the name Blondie, but they did not win the suit. That's, yeah, again, uh, it's funny, uh, bands um, and their their political dynamics have changed quite a bit over the decades, uh, where, you know, in the past there was, you know, this expected lifetime. It was a a beginning, a middle, and an end. And once you hit that end, it's over, uh, which is silly, because you have a lifetime that uh, you may decide to uh, get back together with some of these people uh, from time to time and, uh, you know, have the artistic, when the inspiration strikes, you have this artistic pursuit uh, that is available. But, um, yeah, I can understand maybe not playing with certain people, but, you know, if you look at the credits, you look at the background, I think most people will walk away and say, hey, look, Blondie is really Debbie Harry and Chris Stein first and foremost. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I would definitely throw Clem Burke in there mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, his drumming just uh, was able to create some of those, you know, we've talked about these disco beats that kept coming up into their music, but it isn't exactly disco. It's disco with some power. And I think that's what Clem is bringing uh, to uh, the party. Here. Yeah. Well, plus he's the only one besides Chris and Debbie who yeah. were in the yeah. band during all of its You know, iterations. with that keyboard. Well, especially yes. the early stuff, you know, that Farfisa and things like that. Yeah, all those so he kind of synthesizers but, were important. Look, you're not going to have Blondie without Debbie Harry. Uh, other than that, you, you kind of can have Blondie. Yeah. You know, I yeah. I think in the public's mind. Right. Is, so. so let's sing, listen to a song. From yeah, because uh, they came back in 1999 with a new album, right? Yeah, and it's called uh, No, no Exit. Exit. Yeah. yeah, and this song is great, Maria. Maria, yeah, it's a great song, a great return. So, all right, let's hear Maria. Industry song, by the way. I like that yeah. one a lot. So again, yeah. it's important, Jimmy. Uh, is he still in the band? Uh, no. I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. No. Oh. Well. He left in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, speaking of that, 
Speaking of 2004. Well, speaking of getting towards 2006, they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. And she was surprised. She thought that many other groups would have gotten in before them. And um, and then she also thought knew that Blondie was initially was not taken that seriously by the music industry. But then again, she had never taken the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that seriously either. <laughs> but it felt good to get validation. Um, so they all went, um, and even some of the former band members were invited and got their statuettes. But I think unbeknownst to her and Chris and the people that were in the current band, they didn't know that uh, Frank and Nigel and Gary Valentine, okay, so Frank is Frank Infante, Nigel Harrison, and Gary Valentine had gotten on the stage behind them and decided to say a few words as well. Oh, yes. yes. not Didn't go well. Yes. And so Frankie grabbed the microphone as Debbie and the Chris left to go prepare to play to go to yeah yeah, to go to the stage so that they could play their song Uh Frankie and Nigel and Gary Valentine kept talking and um, Frankie grabbed the microphone and thanked the Hall of Fame for not writing him and the others out of rock and roll history and then he said uh, one thing that could make it better is if we could perform for you tonight but for some reason some of us are not allowed to do that and then he called out to Debbie to please can you please let us play it was very like embarrassing Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she just, uh, like a boss, gets up to the microphone and says, No. No. Uh, This is my band over there. Yeah. And we're going to play. And these are the guys in the band. And she starts saying who's on the stage. So, yeah. yeah. This is is a subject that our our friends uh, at Who Cares About the Rock Hall, Joe Quazala and Kristen Studdard, should consider as a topic of of their show of like crazy nastiness for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something like that. Yeah. Sounds like a good topic. (laughs) (laughs) Like embarrassing things that happened at Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony. Yep. All right. They make it in in 2006. Yep. uh, Rightfully so. Right. Uh, And? And and they go on to do a couple other albums. uh, Not, yeah. Yeah. yeah, A couple other albums. Uh, The last one was in 2017. It's called Pollinator. That's right. Uh, And uh, they made made that in the same studio that uh, called The Magic Shop that David Bowie had recorded Black Star. And in fact, David passed away while they were on a holiday recess from making that album. And they were the last band, really, to make an album in that. Yeah, before they Um, closed it. So they felt really like that, you know, she felt like David was a big part of their career and Mm -hmm. he really supported them. And they, it was really special to be in the studio where he had made his last album. So I I thought that was a touching story. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, get to the end of the book. I thought it was really good. Yeah. And um, it was really fun with all of the art in it, you know, to look at these great, you know, interesting pictures of Debbie that her fans had painted and drawn. Mm-hmm. And she really felt, you know, when she looks back, she feels like she really broke ground as a female artist in a business that was a man's world. And she just got on with it. And as much as possible, she found out how to do the things she wanted to do. She also says she's happier now than she was when she was young because she knows who she is, even if she's, you know, not doing exactly what she wants to do. She's she's comfortable with who she is. But those early days in New York were the best thing in the world that could have happened to her. And, and like a lot of the artists that we read about, 
you know, she was in the right place at the right time for the kind of personality she had and the kind of talents she had. And she really, you know, made made use of that and, you know, dived in. I think she's a very self-aware artist. Yeah. uh, And uh, she knew her place in time and then crafted a persona to fit that mold uh, that was needed. Yeah. And that made her into, you know, an international superstar um, for decades and and still to this day is thought of as, uh, you know, a very female empowered uh, iconic figure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I mean, she she's someone like, you know, Chrissy Hind, I yeah. really admire mm-hmm. Cindy Lauper, you know, take mm-hmm. your life yeah. in the take your musical, you know, world into your hands and shake it up and insist on doing it your way. Well, glad you liked it. I hope everybody gets a chance to go out there and read it. Yes, there's uh, a lot of really, really more great stories in that book. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that's it for this edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. Uh, do we know what we're doing next? I'm I'm still kind of wrestling with two books that I want to read, and I'm trying to decide what order to do them in. Oh, and what are those two books? Oh, um, Booker T. Jones' uh-huh. memoir, yeah. Time is Tight, and um, and a biography on Benjamin Orr of the Cars, because oh, I think be after timely. Rick Okasik died, yeah. you know, yeah. people are interested in the story of the cars. Well, maybe our fans will uh, send us some feedback and uh, help make that decision. Uh, that would be really cool. All yeah, right. you can write to me on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle again? Sorensen Shelley. There you go. Okay, <laughs> let's get out of here and leave everybody with one last Blondie song. Yeah. Hanging on the telephone. Bye, Gracie. Bye-bye. I'm in the phone booth. It's the one across the hall. Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. <laughs>